We now are in our Advent season, which is my favorite time of the year. This is my absolute favorite time. It's the time when we get to come together. We get to every week, we get to light the Advent candles. We get to reflect on all Christ has done for us in his coming here on earth. And what we get the privilege of this morning is we get to continue on in our Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we are going to be kind of resting in verses 57 through 66 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we have Bibles in the back right over here on this table over there. We would love for you to have one. And if you don't have one and you want one, then you can just keep that with you. That's our, our um, gift to you. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Now, one of the other reasons why I love this time of the year is because I, I am one of those people who really loves to see what people do with Christmas decorations outside of their house. Show of hands, who, who decorates for Christmas? Like takes an enthusiastic approach, Okay. Some be, it's not for everybody. Some people really love it. Some people really don't love it. Hate is a strong word, but, you know, some people don't, don't love it. My uncle, he always prided himself in saying he was the last person to put up the Christmas lights, and then he was the first person to take them down in his neighborhood. So I get it. Not everybody likes it, loves it. But a few years ago, Amy and I, we drove the kids around because we wanted to try to find Christmas lights, you know, that were in a different neighborhood. And so we were driving around, and we heard of this neighborhood in Ballard that is the spot to be. If you want Christmas lights, this is where you have to go to see it. And it took some, some figuring out where it was. It was kind of like a little maze. But once we got there, we found this kind of gated community. And inside of it, you would just drive around these different sections, and all of the, the houses were just decked out in elaborate Christmas, Christmas gear. If you ask me where it was, I, I couldn't even remember exactly the streets that it was, so don't ask me for the directions after this. But it was there, and as we were going through, this is the part that, that really stuck out to me. Each, each house had this unique design. And I'm not talking like the plasticky designs that you would find you know, the, the classic, like the Carol Bells with the lights kind of like simulating at the same time. This was like Elvis Santa house. Then the next one was like Rudolph sliding down the, the front lawn. This was retro 50s house. But it wasn't like an artificial way. It was, it was like the materials and the different things that a family had gathered for years that they were like really excited to put back up. Every single house had this kind of unique character and personality to it. And there were all sorts of nativity scenes. It was awesome. And as we were driving through, we kind of left feeling like we knew the neighborhood. Like we knew that person enjoyed these things. We knew that this person, this house, had a particular kind of uh, character to them. And it was awesome. And it was something that captured what I found a visible joy, like a visible joy that was within them. And it invited us, invited me, the one visiting, to be a part of it. The lights and decorations were just kind of like signs pointing to 
something deeper within them, right? And our story begins this morning kind of briefly pausing on Mary's story and taking us out back into the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah, where they too get to see, a vi- get to invite their neighborhood to witness with them this visible joy of the birth of John. And this story, if you remember it earlier, it's kind of coming back to Zechariah, this rural priest, and the answers and the fulfillment that's going to happen to him. When he was in the temple, the angel Gabriel visited him. And the angel said to him, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. Then the angel goes on to say, there will be joy and delight for you. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, as we come to see in the last verses, while still in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So like a scene from a movie, we're brought out of Mary's story for a moment and focus in on this broader narrative of Israel. Because we can't forget that Israel still needed a savior. Israel still needed a savior in the silence of God's present presence. Speaking in the temple through the prophet, it caused hearts to yearn and long towards some type of sign. Because there had been a hopeless malaise that had kind of centered around the question of when would God move again? But after 400 years of silence, Zechariah became the silent sign of God's activity. As one who couldn't speak anymore through his unbelief, he was actually the silent sign That was very loud for Israel. So now in the neighborhood, voices are stirring. People are murmuring what had happened to Zechariah. I mean, we don't know. We can't really talk to him. But something did happen while he was in the temple. Something did happen. The wind, so to speak, had kind of picked up and Israel was eager to see God's next sign. And then as they looked at Elizabeth, they began to see what that sign would be, the sign of her having a son. Maybe to put it another way, God's mercy was shown through individual lives again, starting with Elizabeth and Zechariah. There was now another witness to what God's movements in Israel was, was, uh, was going to take place. So the question then, in f- the forefront of everyone's mind, was that if God is orchestrating movements of grace in the lives, in these lives, through this son, what then will this child be? Our passage this morning answers that question by showing us the faith of an older couple acting in the bold assurance of God's mercy. Unbelief was being silenced as faith took its place in the status quo through the witness of a miracle, spreading hope 
and joy all around the city. And a son is anticipated, the son is adored, and the assurance he brought points to a deeper hope that we have in Christ. So let's read verses 57 through 58 together. We, we kind of see the people's anticipation of this son. Verse 57 through 58. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. It's a boy. Yay. Verse 58. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. So this story, we're already off to a good start. This is already great. Remember Elizabeth, she was the daughter of a priest, and then she married a priest. So a woman of double honor in society. But she lived in double shame as she couldn't have any kids up to this point and she was growing older. So the likelihood of her having kids was getting dim and dim to where then it was just assumed it's impossible, right? But that's where God's mercy shines brightest in places of people who least expect it. Am I right? The places where God's mercy shines brightest are in the places of life where people least expect it to use kind of language that, that we have from last week, God's mercy in Elizabeth was deep and it was wide. Verse 58, it just shows this. The Lord had shown her, individually, her, his great mercy. A singular experience of a woman surprised to joy in God's mercy of having a son. But that's not where it stops. Because when God's mercy surprises those in areas that we least expect it, joy, rejoicing, has this reverberating effect to all of those around us, causing her neighbors to rejoice with us. Joy is not a self-contained emotion. It's something that reverber reverberates. It multiplies. It spreads. It goes to other, which is why it's so impactful. When those who are rejoicing get to share that with others and get to explain with their words what it is that they're rejoicing in. What if Elizabeth had kept all of this to herself? What if Elizabeth kept her pregnancy to, to herself completely and never got to share what was going on in her life with others, then the neighbors wouldn't get to reflect on God's great mercy in her life. They would, re they would be happy for the surprising coincidence of a pregnancy, right? It's so easy to assume these different areas, and what we're going to see, they, they kind of have that, that little moment there. But God's mercy shines brightest and the unexpected areas of our lives. And I think that when, it's, when we consider joy spreading, in our culture, we have a particular challenge of that, a particular challenge of people not getting excited about things that we should be excited about, right? Think of it like a, a shared experience, a witness of something visible. I think it has a stronger invitation to invite people to joy, to invite people to rejoice with us, 
than just trying to tell them to be joyful. Have you guys ever had that happen when someone says like, be joyful, but you're really not feeling it? Sometimes you need a shared experience. You need a, a, something visible that's a stronger invitation for people to come together. Our neighbors sur- that we're surrounded by, I think that our neighbors, my particular neighborhood, it's very difficult to kind of be joyful around them or invite them to rejoice together. Because I'll tell you that where we live, we're surrounded packed in like the city we live in we're packed in to all of these neighbors only two of which we know so it's difficult for us to talk to them it's difficult to be a witness to them when everyone's doors are closed but there is hope there's also hope when it snows because when it snows everyone's rejoicing everyone's excited except for like the two people who are really cranky and we don't know how to get to them anyway. But anyway, when it snows, uh, there's this invitation and this sense that we get to experience something together that is, is totally unique in my neighborhood. And I love it. And it's really fun to see. I remember our first year, we didn't know, we hadn't yet known anyone. But as soon as we had that first big snow, everyone's like popping their heads out. This is pre-COVID, so this is when snow days were actually snow days. Like, people didn't work remotely from home. Everyone was really excited, right? And everyone started popping their heads out. Everyone, I'm looking down. We have a balcony, and I'm looking at the different people around us. And I'm starting to see everyone start coming out. You know, everyone's coming out in their pajamas. Unbeknownst to me, this neighbor that I had never met sleeps in leopard skin pajama pants. We were like... Go back inside, come back out and rejoice with us later. But, you know, he was happy. Anyway, so all of these kids are like popping their heads out. We're meeting neighbors for the first time. And then we begin to start all kind of heading in this direction of this hillside. And as we were walking, the biggest thing that I remembered was all of us are sharing this experience together. All of us are witnessing something outside of ourselves. And we're totally taking advantage of it. How difficult is it if this is just snow and this makes us kind of filled with joy? How can I share the true joy that's in my life? Why is that so difficult? Why is it so difficult to express faith to people? Shouldn't I be more joyful in the moments of just everyday life when I get to see God's beauty in the mundane moments and I get to express faith in those moments. And yet here I am relying on snow to connect me with my neighbors. And I think one of the the elements of that is in the reality of unbelief and the reality that I need Christ in his Holy Spirit to use me as his instrument in miraculous and in untimely ways. And it can be tempting for me to kind of follow in the path of unbelief and mistake God's mercies for mere coincidences. 
the son is anticipated in the lives of these people. And Elizabeth and Zechariah have now a shared experience within their neighborhood to demonstrate and share in God's great mercy in their life, where no one would think it's a mere coincidence, but it's a miraculous circumstance. Joy is caught through the shared of experience when God's mercy is seen. But let's keep reading verses 59 through 63 when we get to see how everyone gathered around to adore this son. Verse 59, when they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. So let's pause there. This newborn is there, is being adored by everyone. This is eight days later. This is following in the Levitical law of circumcising this baby. What a sign of God's great mercy that this is a happen. He's circumcised on that eighth day. But then the neighbors wanted to follow in that custom of that time, which is to name the baby after the father. And particularly in this time with this couple, since they don't have any other children, how much more important would it be for their lineage to continue, right? That's the assumption that's being made. So obviously, they're going to name this son, Zechariah, like his father. But there's something deeper at play, something more underneath that Elizabeth needs to draw attention to. Because Elizabeth's not going to have them making these assumptions of what the son's going to be named. Somehow, at some point, Elizabeth, from what we don't know, but somehow Elizabeth had heard from her husband what had happened in the temple. That's kind of the only way that she would have this information, right? This inside scoop. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, would she wait nine months and just be like, nope, never mind. We're never going to speak a word. She would probably try to figure out what had happened to him. But anyway, this son is there, and the son already has a name given by God through the messenger Gabriel. But I love the real element of this in that the neighbors don't believe it. And what this points to is two dynamics I'd like to address. The first is unbelief testing faith. Then the second is faith silencing unbelief. This, these two dynamics. Unbelief testing faith is what we kind of find here. We can get uncomfortable sharing our faith. I think it takes a particular boldness for someone to naturally feel comfortable with that. We can feel uncomfortable sharing our faith when unbelief is the dominant force in a social setting. Unbelieving assumptions, like I'd mentioned earlier, they kind of test faith into switching a miraculous moment for a mere coincidence. It's kind of a downplay of events 
for a socially normal and kind of socially expected thing. If everyone is behaving and experiencing the same thing, then no one is surprised, just like this name. If his son is named Zechariah too, then a miraculous kind of possibility, this kind of strange turn of events would not be questioned. But as we can see, that God doesn't work like that. God is very keen at flipping ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. And God had moved so dramatically in this life, in her life, that the only response to this unbelief could have been boldness and confidence. So when unbelief tests faith, Ephesians 3, Paul, he gives us confidence in how we can respond, which is in boldness and confidence. This is Ephesians 3, verses 11 through 12. It says, this according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So when we're met with moments where unbelief wants to be the prevailing status quo. And that unbelief is testing our faith by trying to bring in doubts. Well, is it really, is it really something extraordinary? Is it really something that the Lord had told you? Or is it just kind of something that had happened? How we can respond totally matters because we can respond with boldness we can respond with confidence because it's not us who is doing those things. It is Christ who is doing those things through us. We are instruments of his grace and we are experiencing extraordinary moments in ordinary life circumstances. So when unbelief tests our faith, we have boldness and confidence in our past testimonies and in the aid of the Holy Spirit to overcome them. But here's the second dynamic at play, which is the moment when faith silences unbelief. Now, what do I mean by that? Faith silencing unbelief. We saw it earlier in Zechariah, but now we see it again in this kind of new way, this new interaction with Elizabeth and Zechariah to the neighborhood. Faith is silencing the momentary unbelief of the neighborhood and drawing them back to remember God's great mercy that's at hand. It's a good thing to see this and to rebuke it in this type of way. We want God to silence the unbelief around us and deposit faith in its place. I can, I can tell you one example that I have of, of in my life. When we were talking about moving back to Guam, or talking about moving back to Seattle when we were in Guam, I was talking to a friend about this to try to get some, kind of get some counsel, get some help on, it's a big, it was a big move. We had three kids, they were all super young, it was just kind of complex, but the biggest thing that my friend kept bringing up, and bless his heart, it's true, the house rent prices. I get it. But he kept on saying, but, you know, Mark, it's like really expensive to live there. 
you know, and then, and then it kept going, and then eventually, kind of what was like in his mind kind of came out, which is, you're, you know, you might not find a place. And I remember even just saying, I was like, well, God's going to take care of that. I didn't really think about any kind of response deeper than just that. God's going to take care of it, right? And then kind of move on in the conversation. But later on, he told me later, and he called me, and he said, he said Mark, that was the most gracious rebuke that I've experienced in a little while. I was like, what did I say? You know, like, what do you mean? I didn't mean to rebuke you. That sounds like a sad word. That sounds like, what did I, what did I do? And he's like, the time when you told me that God would take care of your housing, and I just, I had this assumption that you wouldn't find anything, and it was kind of my unbelief of that moment. You know, and, and, and we kind of got to share that moment of, yeah, God is going to provide. God is going to do that. And he did. He did provide. But it was this moment of faith silencing unbelief. So don't think of that term as a negative thing. It's quite the opposite. It's a positive. Faith silences unbelief for our joy, for God's glory, and for all of our collected good. Zechariah was silenced through faith, and faith was the only thing that he had left. And now, in an unbelieving assumptions around Zechariah and Elizabeth, now they, in their faith, are silencing the unbelief that, that's around them. Paul, back in Ephesians, he goes on to say, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So friends, if the spirit is residing in, in us, if his words are coming out of us, then it means when unbelief is seeking to dampen our hope and to dampen our encouragement in Christ, when unbelief is the presiding notion in an area, we can step out in boldness and in confidence explaining our faith, giving witness to our faith in the expectation that God will silence unbelief through our faith. Faith is powerful, and it has the same type of powerful effect when we look in this story. As faith is the primary force of Elizabeth and Zechariah's boldness, they silence the crowd to amazement. You see how that happens? It's not a negative thing. It's a positive. They silence the crowd to amazement. So now the people aren't walking away sad. They're rejoicing with Elizabeth and with Zechariah. One, one commentator, though, he asks, what could have influenced the aged couple? The crowd must have wondered. To be so firm in insisting that this particular name should be given to the son. So I want to go back to that broader narrative of 
why on earth would this son be named John when there's no evidence in his family proposing any other, any other name, any other kind of recommendation, right? There are no Johns in the family. So that's what they must have wondered. But what this touches on is this moves into a deeper work at play, a deeper hope at play that's beginning to be sensed. A deeper assurance of God's handiwork in this newborn son to consider. So let's, let's continue to read verses 64 through 66 together. Where it says, Immediately his mouth was open, this is Zechariah, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being, at, were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judah. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Zechariah finally speaks. And when he spoke, joy reverberated outside of those who were just present into the neighborhood, into the hill country, into the broader city, capturing hearts and filling Israel with hope in the assurance of what this child will be. That same phrase, took it to heart, that same phrase is nearly identical to what we're going to find in chapter 2 when Mary is sitting holding baby Jesus and all of the shepherds and the different people are coming around worshiping him. It says that she reflected and treasured these things in her heart. So now we're having a deep joy, a deep hope, a deeper assurance that's now within the people of Israel asking, what will this child become? What will this child be? Because what we find is that he will be the prophet who comes before the Lord, who turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of their children back to their fathers. That's Malachi 4. He will be the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's that's uh, Mark 1, and he's going to be the one who baptizes the Son of God for all righteousness to be fulfilled. Matthew 3, this Son, what will be of the Son? He is going to be the herald of the one, he's going to be the herald who invites those sinners and sufferers to come rest in the glorious grace of their Savior. What this child will be is the one who brings hope to a people who have grown content in hopelessness, who've grown content of the malaise of discouragement. Just as Jesus is going to come, he is the one who's going to call out, look, there is our Savior. And that's going to be a visible joy. As I think about visible joy, and I think about the Christmas season, the Christmas season is also a sign for us that we can share hope 
to those who desperately need it. One of my saddest Christmas memories is also one that kind of became the most hopeful. It was the first Christmas that my parents, uh, that my, my sister and I, we experienced our first Christmas of my parents being divorced. So this was the first holiday where my sister and I shared time between our parents, right? It kind of completely shifted that day. Normally, in, in the beginning, on Christmas morning, we would celebrate it with my dad, and then we would go and we would celebrate it with my mom. And my dad was currently staying in the house that we had grown up in. Now, the, the divorce, it was like, you know, it wasn't quite finalized of who would get what, you know, when it came to, to them and, and their property. So my dad was staying in the house, right, that, I, that we were living in, and my mom was renting this apartment. But the Christmas decorations were just kind of all scattered, and it was the least thought of thing in a moment like that. But I remember when on Christmas Eve, my dad was working, and I was there in the house with my sister. And, you know, it wasn't, his, it wasn't a fault of his, but no Christmas decorations or anything were put out. And I just remember this sadness of looking at this empty house where furniture that we had once all shared was now kind of divided. The Christmas decorations that we would normally have up, there's nothing there. The chairs and the Christmas tree that we would normally put in this one section was where my dad's big chair that he would read in stayed. Part of the joy of every year was trying to like maneuver this giant chair and move it into a different location, right? And it was kind of the conquering feat that we all got to move the giant chair in place of this big tree. But there the chair just stood, just was there. And it was a dark kind of room. It was kind of cold. My dad never turned on the heat, so it didn't make anything better. And as we're just sitting there, this sadness came over us. And my sister began to kind of express kind of this hopeless kind of feeling like this is what Christmas is going to be from now on. And I just could not stand it. So I remember going into our garage and trying to like rummage through all of the um, different boxes and different things as things were getting moved out and I found some Christmas lights and I took the Christmas lights as she was like in another room and I wrapped them around the chair. <laughs> I wrapped them around the chair and I reclined it and then I took our Christmas presents that were like in the kitchen now, which made everything worse, right? Who has presents in the kitchen, you know? You take the kit, so I put them out and then I put them under the reclining seat and I tried to just wrap it up. And then when she came in, she found the Christmas light, the Christmas light glow around a chair, which many would find quite odd. But I so desperately wanted to give her hope in like something could be kind of normal after this. That I was trying to willing to do something kind of odd in its place. And as I kind of reflected on that this week, 
I realized that then I was acting in, impulsively. I was, you know, acting, you know, just out of, I wanted to fix the situation that I couldn't quite control. I wanted to assure my sister that even though our home was empty or even barren, if you will, of all of the memories of family that we had once had, hope was still in the future. But I wouldn't know how that would be expressed. And years later, I would come to see that home, that physical home, that emptiness, as a reflection of my soul in my state. Because that would leave an impression on me that would last a lot longer than I would really want it to. That dividing of the furniture, that misplaced Christmas decorations, all of those things that had tied me to a sense of normalcy would reveal in my heart an unknown anger and an unknown and an unidentifiable sadness that would continue on for the years to come. And I needed a hope outside of myself, outside of something that I could just kind of wrap up or do to take me out of my state and put me into something new and something beautiful and something long-lasting. When I was a teenager, super angry, super upset at my life circumstances and trying to find this hope, Hope found me. Christ found me. And Jesus swept me into his grace and brought me into assurance that I could never have imagined. Through the the faith of my friends, when they were just living out the gospel, like I've kind of said this before, When I got saved, no one had like an evangelistic purpose. No one was like, we're going to get Mark saved. Everyone was just kind of living life. But in that, their joy reverberated into me. And I began to see a deeper hope that they shared, something that my wrapping of Christmas lights could could never address and could never satisfy. It was the eternal assurance of salvation. So in all of my guilt and all of my shame that I brought to Jesus, he covered everything with his abounding grace. And that is the hope that Christians have in Christ. And when we look in this kind of holiday season, the advent of hope is the remembrance that there was a deeper working of God's mercies at play before you and I even existed. The deeper hope that God would send his son to take on our shame, to bear our burdens, and instead replace us with a joy and a gladness and hope is something that you and I should never take take advantage of and should never let unbelief dampen that reality. Christmas is not just about these lights and these different decorations, but it is about 
the reflection of the joy that we have in Christ. And so we can use these things. We can use the different decorations. We can use these different things to show and bear witness to a world in unbelief where our joy and where our hope comes from. Amen? That is the hope that we find in the assurance of Christ. We, church, get to be the visible sign of joy. The visible sign of a deeper hope awaits those who were just like me, who were perhaps just like you, lost in the malaise of unbelief, ready to be captured into faith in Christ. So as we go living out this day, as we go living out this week, we're going to be confronted with people who are going to try to take God's miraculous mercies and dampen them with mere moments of coincidence. Friends, I encourage you to be bold. Be bold, step out in the hope that is within you. Have confidence that Christ does speak through you. Have confidence that God is going to use you in places that you least expect, and his mercies are going to shine bright in those moments. And what is going to be your job? To identify it. To those who are so desperately looking for it. That is the joy that we get to bring to this world, to our neighborhood, to your neighbors. Look for those moments so that we can reverberate the joy that we have in Christ and point people to the deeper hope that we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me in that direction? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace and thankful for the hope that you give us in Jesus. But God, we come before you just as we did in our prayer of confession knowing that our, and recognizing that our lives are confronted with unbelief, that our lives are confronted with assumptions that everyday life just is a coincidence. And God, you so prove us wrong. You prove them wrong when we open up your scriptures and we see how you, in your great Mercy, show people a deeper hope. And we pray, God, that you would let us be your instruments. Let us be your messengers during this season, this holiday season, when many can be so distracted and trying to put on those lights of false hope. Let us be your messengers who point people and give people the hope that we have in Christ. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.